pilot. Pilot? What's a pilot? Well, the way they pick TV shows is they make one show. That show's called a pilot. And they show that one show to the people who pick shows. And on the strength of that one show, they decide if they want to make more shows. Some get chosen and become television programs. Some don't. Become nothing. She started one of the ones that became nothing. How dark would you say your sense of humor can go, Keith? Like, what, do you think, on average, you have uh, maybe a higher tolerance or more of an interest in dark humor than maybe the average TV viewer? Uh, probably, yeah. I am a fan. Like, you always want the joke or at least the execution to be done well, but I think anything can be kind of tackled. But right. any the situation any has to be any subject is shouldn't be off limits, and a good storyteller, writer, actor knows uh, the direction to take it. Yeah, I think that doing a show that tackles death is a tall order because not a lot of people like to think about death, especially not through um, a sixty-minute episode every week. But I think that it's actually maybe a subject that the more you think about it, the less scary it becomes. And I think that the show we're talking about today does a really good job of making it more palatable. Uh, but certainly it's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, at least it's something a lot of people will shy away from. Uh, so today we're talking about Six Feet Under. As we continue on our series on HBO, you know, so far we've talked about uh, a couple comedies, a drama in The Sopranos that does have comedic moments. And today we're talking about a show that is, I think, a solid drama, but also it has some darkly comedic moments. And that's tough to do because for a lot of people, this is a very serious subject. And to alleviate that, takes a very steady hand i this show hit me at the right time in my life or at least i was i was like right after college and i was just in that i was i was in a slump i was in like just a existential not even what i was gonna do i was just in a not in a dark place but just i, I was meh and this show really bring me out of it and it's not that I always think back on this show and you know I don't think a show or anything can make you completely like uh, fearful of like oh death is around the corner and but it made me understand it a little more it made me okay with the fact it made me it's not that I was laughing at death it's like I was laughing with it yeah it's this very tricky thing that you have to have respect for the the force of death in a way without being totally afraid of it either and i think those are some of the lessons that the show tries to instill in its characters and certainly its audience again it comes from a perspective i'm curious for someone to want to tackle this subject what that perspective is like you know what what inspires someone to tell a story that totally revolves around death as a constant presence. 
because yeah, the the idea of the show, right? The the premise is this family, the Fisher family, they run a family owned funeral parlor, right? Like a funeral business, as uh, I guess a lot of funeral parlors traditionally were. And I think there's a little touching up on maybe the more corporatization of the industry. But yeah, to, to do that as a profession is, I don't know, I guess it might make you a little numb to to the experience of grief and death. But I don't know, that has to take its toll on a person after a while. So it's interesting to have a show that focuses on this family that is dealing with on a day-to-day basis, certainly in the first episode. But I... I've seen a few episodes of the show and I am aware that you get like the the funeral of the week, right? And that that makes it interesting to see all these different stories and people coming through who are dealing with a tragedy, but at the same time you get a glimpse into their lives, uh, you know, and, and how they're impacted. And I would say a reason why this show and you wouldn't think I think because it was on HBO it was allowed to really explore those topics, not even beyond uh, death. Like I think it explores just a lot of like what these characters go through. I will say that this is one of the best. If Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, if those are good character study shows, this is one of the best shows of character development. Like all those, all the main characters, uh, who they are in the beginning, where they are each season. It's very, uh, they make very real choices. And by the end, you are very emotionally satisfied. And I think, you know, we only talk about pilots, but I think it's, uh, it is known that Six Feet Under does have one of the best, if not the best series finale of all time. You know, that's a definitely an accomplishment because even to have a satisfying finale, Forget about if it's one of the all-time best. Just to say it's a good finale is an accomplishment. Because we've discussed before, it's very difficult to do that and to please the fans of a show that they're very much invested in. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure there to deliver on an ending that pays everything off. So, yeah, let's get a little to the history here of Six Feet Under. Interestingly enough, you know, this is a show coming in when there's already a lot of prestige coming to the network. And this is just continuing to push that momentum and that that reputation for HBO. So take us through that and how this uh, how this came to be. Uh, well, it, it was written by our old friend, Alan Ball. Now, we've met Alan Ball before, but a, a future show that he did, True Blood. Right, right. Already discussed that. We had mentioned in the True Blood episode that he had created Six Feet Under. But uh, this first episode premiered June 3rd, 2001. I just turned 11 another summer show another summer premiere that's very interesting and also to have a summer show with a very bleak subject matter is is an interesting contrast this feels very wintry but to air this in the summer is a bit counterintuitive it it does feel wintry but i, I you know i uh looking back on all these hbo shows a lot of them are like 13 episodes a lot of the dramas and that's a good summer you know, that's about that's leading up right into Labor Day. Yeah, right. It takes you right into the regular broadcast schedule. So as soon as these prestige HBO shows finish their seasons, now you go back into your more regular programming that takes you for two thirds of the year. 
So it premiered to 4.97, basically 5 million viewers, which is not bad. Definitely I think we're going to HBO. We're going to keep seeing these numbers grow, right? Like I think each pilot we've discussed, the number of viewers has been larger than the previous ones. Just goes to show the rolling momentum that these original programs were having. Now, I didn't know this about Alan Ball. I did not know that he you know, he kind of like David Chase and uh uh the guy who created Arrested Development before, like they were TV writers and, you know, Alan Ball basically, you know, he had he used to write for Grace Under Fire and Civil. He used to work under Chuck Lorre. Yeah, yeah. Another a tie to another previous show that we had discussed, uh, the or at least a creator of a show that we had discussed. And he had his very short-lived uh, sitcom, Oh, Grow Up. That's how I'm going to say. Oh, grow up. I like how the title has a comma after, oh, like, oh, grow up. It's very flippant in a way that I guess sounds kind of fun, but it didn't last very long. So I guess 13 episodes, two unaired. And wow. But the thing, of course, I think a lot of people know this name, Alan Ball, or at least if you follow movies and television, he, of course, really hit his moment when he wrote the Academy Award winning screenplay for American Beauty. Yeah, definitely a classic, and I think watching this pilot, knowing that he had written American Beauty just a couple years prior, it does fit, right? It, it That does track, I would say. They, there's, um, I don't know, similarities and a certain whimsy to, again, these darker subjects that he has a knack for matching the two. It presents, there's a lot of similarities. It presents like a real scenario with a, unexpected de- almost devastating event but there's also like we get in a lot of input uh we we see the world through the character's eyes and there's like this magical realism to it like oh uh, like you know of course we see it through kevin spacey's character but a lot in six feet under you'll get a uh, peek inside the head of all the characters and what they're feeling in the moment to how they're acting in real life yeah, it's another interesting tie. Like in American Beauty, it's the narration of Kevin Spacey that's insight into his mind. But here, we're getting other ways of peeking into the psyche of these characters. It's it's all very clever. Now, when we were doing research into the show, like there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different stories about how the show got uh, even thought of. But I think the main one lies with like. Alan Ball had to deal with the death of his father and his sister around the same time. And I'm sure, I'm sure as devastating as that was and tragic, there's that little writer seed. I'm sure he's sitting around yeah. the wakes and he's looking at, I'm sure he was with a family owned funeral parlor and he was just like, Oh, I wonder what it's like behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I think, even in the face of a personal tragedy or two, a lot of storytellers will just instinctually find inspiration in unexpected moments and unexpected places. And I guess anytime you maybe encounter, right, like a, for this example, right, a, a funeral parlor, it's never been explored. Maybe he's noticing this. It's never been explored what their lives are like. And so that's maybe the the inspiration for for the show here so i i like that i think a, a storyteller it, it they can never turn off that instinct for finding a good idea so uh it is it should be noted that when he wrote a draft he sent it to hbo and the hbo entertainment president Callan strauss 
proposed to him saying it should be a little more fucked up. That was her note. And he was like, oh, I, okay. And I think that goes to show just that in our theme of HBO, that just goes to show where HBO's head was at to just try to be more than just what people see on TV. Right. How refreshing is that too, for someone who was just coming off of a failed broadcast sitcom and all their experience was with broadcast television that, uh, oh no, now you're being told to go the other way, right? It's um, too safe. Not, not that you need to make it safer. So I'm sure that had to be liberating and a good reason why he would wind up coming back to the network to do another show. Now I find now when we get into the casting, a lot of these names we know now. Like it's so funny that we all like all these stars have become. I've either had hit TV shows or have been really. They're all really good character actors. Uh, yeah, yeah, great cast. A lot of this it was their break, really main breakthrough role. Like I know Peter Krause had his short-lived run on Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night, um, but HBO at the time was. They said you can have this show. We just want one big name on it. And the only I found it funny that the only really big name uh, at the time was Rachel Griffiths, Brenda. Right. And she gets she, the um, she gets she was just nominated for an Academy Award in 1999. And I, I didn't know that. I just I always I know she's yep. the dance teacher and step up and all that. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like he he had to really convince them to put Richard Jenkins in it. Yeah, Richard Jenkins is a character actor who we've seen a lot of stuff. He's the quintessential, oh, I've seen him in a ton of stuff kind of actor. And uh, I I absolutely love him in this. But I'm sure that was the role that they wanted a big star for. Right. And I'm sure there there would have been probably a lot of really great, recognizable veteran actors who could fit the role of the patriarch. But Richard Jenkins is so perfect in this that in hindsight it was it was the right choice for him and he he actually as an actor i feel like this is a really exciting role to play because you're playing several different versions of this character depending on which of his children are imagining him right as we'll get into so it's it's a very juicy role to play Family dynamics are abound in this show. It's definitely from like their relationship with their father, definitely with their mother as well. But we'll get into why it's the father in just a bit. But he wrote the two main or like the two heads of the household, Nate and David Fisher, the brothers. He originally pictured Christopher Maloney and Justin Theroux uh, for the roles, but neither could do it. They weren't available. So then. That's where we get our leads, Peter Krause, who who kind of uh, was up for both, but he got Nate. Michael C. Hall, who's never really acted in TV before, he was really just on Broadway. He was doing uh, a show of cabaret with Sam Mendes, American uh, beauty director, and I'm sure Alan Ball went to a showing and said, that's my David. Yeah, yeah, I think Michael C. Hall is really great in this too. Because the character David, as we'll find out, is a very tightly wound character for very good reason. And Michael C. Hall definitely is very good in that. And yeah, a lot of people obviously know him now as Dexter. And that's a show that we will definitely get to one day. Uh, But seeing him in this too 
is yeah he he very much you can see how he goes from this role to Dexter afterwards you can some similarities but I I can see how this is a good launching pad for an even bigger role for him later down the road and uh, uh, like you know Freddie Rodrigo uh, Rodriguez who plays uh, Frederico he had a recurring role in Oh Grow Up uh, and so Ball wrote him with uh, wrote the role with him in mind yeah yeah so yeah it it's funny too as an actor you never know what small part will lead to an even bigger project so um i'm sure he was thinking when ogre up gets canceled like all right well i guess that's that but uh it opened him up to this and yeah i I actually know this actor firstly from uh what was that uh grindhouse right in uh planet terror but uh, yeah, very memorable in this too. But then, um, and then Francis Conroy also seems very perfect for this too, as as the mother Ruth. And a lot of people now would know her for her roles in American Horror Story. Uh, so certainly, she's an actress who has, I guess, maybe a penchant for either yeah. For this, it's it's I don't want to say it's a spooky show, but certainly, uh, it it has a, a dark way about it and then american horror story definitely a spooky show so there's something about this actress where i don't know she kind of fits into these more twisted and again darker themed uh uh, premises she's both uh the joker and barney stinson's mom oh see (laughs) barney stinson's mom okay interesting she has that yeah and you know there's always jokes about like you know how how what kind of mom she was but she was she is very a she's perfect as ruth it's a this show it's a shame this show won no emmys in the acting category but i i think because it sopranos kind of took it all Uh, right it was it was kind of like competing against a sister program on the same network but hey like at the same time that you still get the acclaim it's not always about just winning the trophy i mean be nice to have but you're just also the show is is doing so many great things that the the trophy's nice, but it's validated in just the fact that it's so good. No, it like I would say, uh, especially with the block of shows that we're going to talk about, uh, the highs for HBO are like around this era are like the ninety, are like the Bulls at the like ninety three, yeah. ninety four Bulls. Like they are like it's, it's an all star. You, know, you, you you got Sopranos, but then. Six feet under, like it, it, it's like, it's like going to Live Aid and just seeing like the Beatles, Rolling Stones. Like you're getting the best, the best of the best. Yeah, yeah, it's like the Dream Team, right? And yeah. I'm sure all these shows, if it wouldn't, it wasn't for um, all their sister programs, right? Like if this show had aired before The Sopranos came out, it would have won all those awards, but uh, it had to compete basically against itself. Uh, so, yep, again, it's it's just a time where the network is almost flexing its muscles a bit. And I'm sure that uh, the the broadcasters are looking at each other like, oh, man, we're, we are being outpaced here. And uh, they got to step up their games at this point. Exactly. Uh, a funny story about Frances Conroy. Uh, on the night of the premiere, uh, she was commended. She was out shopping at an L.A. supermarket and one someone commended her. On her performance, but the it didn't air yet. Turns oh. out the guy ca- the guy caught the East Coast feed. 
Oh, interesting. That's kind I, it's of... It's a cute story. It's a cute story, I think. All right. But it, it must be I, like, huh. I'm sure as an actor, though, that has to be kind of nice and unexpected for someone to recognize you and call it your your performance, especially if the show just comes out, right? You probably don't expect to get that reaction so soon. And uh, that that's great. Because like, Frances Conroy, as much as she is typically featured in these much uh, darker programs, there's something about her I also find very endearing. And so, you know, I, I, I'm happy for her as an actress and I'm always excited for what she's going to deliver on the screen. And uh, right before we jump into it all, this pilot did win an Emmy. Funny enough, not for writing. I, I was like shocked that it didn't win for writing, but it won for directing. Well it's also as well. Also well-deserved. And I think as we're going to go through this, uh, we're going to find a lot of uh, very interesting and subtle touches that help strengthen the themes that Alan Ball is trying to convey here. All right, so here we go. It is now June 3rd, 2001. We're putting on HBO. And now, Keith, you can take us to the pilot. Flight 527, runway 8 kilo, you're cleared for takeoff. Well, before we even get to the credits, the first thing that I noticed is the aspect ratio. <laughs> oh, okay. Is it? It's different, right, than the other shows we talked about? It is. TVs were smaller back then. <laughs> right. I guess they haven't translated this show like they have with Sex and the City and The Sopranos because those are adapted now to the widescreen format, but they haven't done that for Six Feet Under. And I guess maybe that's because this show hasn't been rewatched as much in the years since. And I, I have a feeling that even though this did have a strong pilot audience in the years since, I think maybe this has a little more of a niche audience and appeal than say, you know, Sopranos or Sex in the City. I think you're right. It's a good size crowd, but not compared to either uh, Sopranos or Sex in the City. Like right now they're doing... Yep. It's it's the Sopranos twenty fifth. I do wonder if we'll get the twenty fifth. I'm sure, I'm sure the aspect ra ratio will change once we hit like the twenty fifth anniversary of Six Feet Under. Yeah, but no, interesting. I did notice that as well. I'm like, oh, this maybe isn't getting the same love as some of the other programs at the time, and hopefully, it's not a case where it was in the shadow of those other shows because it certainly deserves its own time in the sun. But uh, the opening credits are, I would describe them as dark and macabre but also because of the score a little whimsical which is a good way to describe the show the i vibe got that we're i got the go whimsy into. i got the whimsy as well i think it's sort of like a thing where it's going to be poetic the way we're tackling the theme of death and grieving and there's going to be some perspective here and i think that also again it's a very similar sort of feeling score as American Beauty, this sort of unexpected and, like you said, whimsical, but also a slightly twisted perspective. Well, the guy who, the the composer who did the score for American Beauty did the score for the opening. Thomas right, right. Newman, he, he did American Beauty, Finding Nemo, Shawshank Redemption. He's, a, he's up there with the best of them. Oh, okay. You know, I think he has this very signature sort of... Um, I don't know, like dinging sound where there's like an aha moment 
in the story where he did pay it forward too <laughs> oh okay yeah yeah there's like a very much sort of um intriguing way that he composes and it's it's all very catchy i do like his themes but uh i do get a kick out of them too because i don't know they do get you sucked in but there are some familiar beats like oh here's here's your aha moment right here I, because it's the pilot we are introduced to a very surreal sexy ad for a new hearse like come on like drive in style drive to the afterlife in style and that will serve us for the act breaks as we go along and that's the only that only happens in the pilot right i can imagine if this was something they want to be recurring you would only get one per episode and even if that were to happen it would probably only be like a a season one thing that would be dropped by season two because i i can't imagine how many of these kind of commercials we'd get we're going to see all the different kinds of products that are being satirically advertised but um it makes sense maybe to set the tone the first episode but you you definitely don't need it for subsequent episodes once you get the gist i think that's why he did it he had that like trump card to play and he's going to use it in the pilot really just once again to set the the tone that we are tackling this dark subject with a little bit of humor a little bit of satire yeah, and maybe a little criticism on, I don't know, the the commercialization of the funeral business. Not that they're really – you don't see commercials like this ever. I don't think you ever see a commercial for a hearse. But I guess there's something to be said about how any company and the, the industry itself is maybe getting a little too removed from the the very nature, the dark nature of you know what, what exactly is happening here. Because it is an industry, they do have – funeral conventions where people do go and sure yeah. and, and, there, and there is an episode where they do that does happen they you know they do promote all these kind of items but you know we kind of fade out of this weird dreamlike commercial and we meet the patriarch of the fisher family nathaniel fisher and he's driving this new hearse he's on his way to the airport uh to pick up his son nate and uh it's He's singing I'll Be Home for Christmas because it is Christmas Eve. And, you know, he lights up. He's smoking. He's smoking. Yeah. And, you know, he gets a call from his wife. You know, just kind of Ruth is preparing Christmas dinner. And she knows him well enough to, yeah, you're smoking, aren't you? You know, it reminded me when we were talking about the Malcolm in the Middle pilot, which aired just a year and a half before this. Same thing. Someone's caught smoking over the phone. And it's a very subtle thing. Whether it's a mom recognizing that that uh, from her son smoking or a wife recognizing that her husband is smoking, right? It's a very subtle thing that you learn to um, pick up on that sort of be like what what it's like when someone takes a break to to take a, a huff. Uh, so I don't know, just another interesting thing I noticed there. Um, but of course, there's a lot of very subtle uh, misdirections in this scene. Oh yeah. Well, the the one thing that kind of strikes you is that it is a f- very normal conversation, honey. You said you were going to quit smoking. All right, you got the second son at the table. Dad is picking up the oldest son from the airport. Mom's making Christmas Eve dinner. Everything's going according to plan. And uh, Richard Jenkins and Nathaniel says, "All right, I'm I, I'm going to quit. This is my last cigarette." And, uh, you know, throws it out. And then he lights as he's lighting up a new one. Never take your eyes off the road, folks, because he gets hit by a bus. Yes. T-boned. Just... T-boned. Awfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, 
it should be noted that all like like you said before, it is a a recurring thing. Each episode doesn't matter who it could be anyone random, but each episode of Six Feet Under starts with someone dying in their obituary. Yeah, because usually that's the person that the service will be later in the episode that this family will be handling. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of deliberate things happening here that I, that I think won Alan Ball the, the you know, outstanding directing Emmy. Just little things like, you know, the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of irony in this first scene. Also, the irony of dying in a hearse, right? And being the, the someone being dead in the front seat of the hearse as opposed to being in the back of the hearse. And there's also a line from Ruth about, uh, you're going to have a very slow death from smoking those cigarettes. And actually leads to a very quick death good, a very good catch good right? catch because like this whole show this whole episode really is just kind of dealing with not only a bunch of irony but it's just taking the premise of what's the worst like thing that could happen to a family on christmas eve and not only just any family a family that runs a funeral home what's everything goes wrong how is it going to go wrong and the other touch, too, is that obviously the family doesn't know right away. They keep carrying on as normal. They have no idea so far that the patriarch has been killed in a very violent way. So that's that's as an audience. That's the dramatic irony of it as well, is that their lives are continuing as normal for the time being, despite the life of their father being cut short. Yeah, the, uh, the conversation continues. Ruth, maybe universe like the universe does deliver a cut to Ruth, like she cuts herself on the knife, um, but she fears that her husband's cheating on her. Yeah, interesting. It's it's almost like an omen that maybe it's yeah. trying to tell her something else, right? Like the omen maybe is alluding to this death she's unaware of so far, but she's reading it into something else, infidelity. But there's probably a reason why that the, the subject of infidelity will learn is something that's on her mind already. Now, David, Michael C. Hall, he, uh, you know, he wants to help out his mom, but, you know, she, they got a, they got a viewing coming, and since their father's picking up their brother, David's basically in charge of the business right now, so he has to go prepare for that. So, we, we go over to the airport where Nate and Brenda are leaving the plane, and they're, they seemed like they had a really good chat, they probably sat next to each other, they had a really good conversation, Coming from Seattle, it looks like Seattle to L.A. L.A., yeah. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of like, hey, like, you know, I'm waiting for my dad. He's going to give me a ride. And Brenda's like, I can give you a ride. So Dave, we cut to Dave at the viewing. And it basically it's just like if there's any, you know, you're, you expect all these nice things to be said to somebody. And, you know, she looks beautiful. If there's any justice in the universe, she's shoveling shit in hell. I wrote that <laughs> yeah. down. And I Me too. You, t- you saw it. Like, that's a good line. That's great. It's very unexpected. And I guess this this old man, I'm assuming that's his wife that is having a funeral, right? That's his wife that's in the, the, the casket. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, he, I don't know. It must be a very bitter guy to say this kind of thing. He's very cavalier about it, too. He doesn't. He doesn't care at all what David's reaction to this might be. And the dead don't hear. No, no. And David also, 
he reacts in a way that is also subdued. This can't be the first time he's encountered a very bitter spouse at a, at one at a service here. So for them, it's just like they've seen it all death wise. Like this for them, it is a business, and that's where it really gets interesting. Like just like they, they and they'll say it many times throughout this pilot, but throughout the show, like th- this is the person's worst day, but for them, it's a Tuesday. Yeah, this this that that's what I'm saying. Like for this to be your life, your career to run this business, death is your business, and it becomes normalized. And I think that's interesting. Now in this very first episode, we're getting how does how does the family that death is normal? How do they grieve? And we're gonna be getting that just right off the starting gate. So Dave gets a call. David, I should say, because I think he would call himself David. David gets a call from his younger sister, very younger sister, Claire, who's still in high school and uh, played by Lauren Ambrose. And she wants to go to a party. Like, you know, how long is this dinner going to last? Because I, I want to go to a party with my friends. Then right after that, we showed a, a quick thing of Nate and, Brending, Nate and Brenda fucking in the janitor's closet. Just yeah. a quick, that's what Brenda, like these two, like they don't, they're probably not going to see each other again. Why don't we just have one last go or one go at it, as it were? Right. They must have had some chemistry there they were picking up on, and it was a very opportunistic thing. And they both say, like, oh, I never do this. Me neither. Uh, uh, who knows if there's any truth to that? They both seem like they're a bit uninhibited. but They both uh, seem like they do it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. But to do it in a closet, it, it's like, okay, if you say you never do something like that, you must have done something similar to not really have many reservations of, you know, an airport janitor closet of all places. So Ruth gets a call and, uh, you know, she, you know, who is it? Yes, I'm his wife. Throws the phone down. Oh, my God. Like, the probably one – I always think of this. One of the most appropriate freakouts. Oh, I've yeah. Like, if not, like, then throw, when? Tosses everything. Yeah. And I, I did have to kind of laugh. Because you can hear her screaming upstairs, and you can see David and some uh, parishers just standing there, yeah. Just like, and you just hear this screaming, and David's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check it out. Everybody, okay? I'm gonna professional and- as ever as ever that David is, right? He keeps it together, and you're right. It's like a very dramatic moment when you first see her screaming and throwing everything in the kitchen, and then it's yeah, it's all of a sudden a little funny. When it cuts to downstairs in the the parlor and people are like, huh, what's going on? Right? It's unexpected humor coming from what is otherwise a very horrible tragedy. And so David goes to check on her and all Ruth can say, and I wrote this down, the hearse is totaled, your father is dead, the pot roast is ruined. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's just really good writing. It's it's kind of funny mom what the hell are you there's been an accident the new hearse is totaled your father is dead your father is dead and my pot roast is ruined so you know we go back to Nate who's there Nate and Brenda are wrapping this up and uh, you know he asked her for her name and that's when, you know, he gets a call and it's David. Oh, happy, ha- Merry Christmas. What's up? And of course, David has to be the one to tell 
his brother the unfortunate news. I think David's telling everybody the news, right? He's kind of, again, he's he's the one who is taking charge here, and this is a role that he's used to. And even though it's a tragedy for him too, he kind of has to assume responsibility for everyone. He's been feeling that way for a while. I'll right. He, he's used to it, and it's like he resents it, but it's also like a power trip for him too. I think it's like, it's like one of those things where he – at this point has turned it into a way to just be a little superior to other people. A little, he had like, he has that. Oh God. He like, th this is another show where you can really dissect these characters and the way they, their interactions with each other, their dynamics. Right. And just having watched the first episode, you can already get a sense of that. Like, okay. Like he is the guy who's, who keeps it together for everyone as the middle child. And you have uh, you can sense a little resentment, but at the same time, he is unwavering in his, um, you know, in, in his conviction to be this person who you know carries everyone along. If I'm not mistaken, he's like a type A personality. If I know my type, it's like he is very like. Yeah, I would say uh, that, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we now go to Claire's quote friends like you know they kind of look like a bunch of losers but and they are because they're smoking meth yeah and it's and, like a gross rundown house right it's yeah it's nasty the, close up of like you know moldy food they even made a point to show that and uh speaking of her friend we got another pilot buddy eric yes. belfer he's back baby that's right from the buffy the vampire pilot he was the friend that uh did not survive that first two-part episode but he's back in this for – And guess good for him because mm -hmm. he was supposed to only be in the pilot, but they liked him enough that his character becomes a really – like they go through their relationship, friendship. Like it, it's a – you know, Claire – Claire's a character. I'll say that. <laughs> well, it's very brief that this interaction they have of where you know, he's giving her the, the pipe to smoke and he's explaining crystal meth to her. And it's, it's a very quick interaction they have, but I guess the director saw enough to realize they did have chemistry and there was something worth taking further. So he could have been just another pilot actor. He could be a professional pilot actor, but good for him, like you said, for, I guess, making the most of it and getting recognized by the director to become more of this show than he otherwise would have to go back to my like what's the worst thing that could happen on the day that your dad dies smoking meth well is and then one the, of the worst the reverse too is like what's one of the worst things to happen when you're on drugs like yeah. of death in the family you know that's that one is the worst thing to happen for the other i mean in general meth is the worst thing anyway but uh this definitely doesn't help so yeah no it's so everyone's kind of driving back home, and uh, Brenda, being a good person, offers to drive Nate, and you get to you get a little they get a little chance to know know each other. Like you know, what's great about Brenda is like how uh, fucked up her family is. Both her parents are therapists, and she has a manic depressive brother, played by Jeremy Sisto, who is great. Right, like, we get he, a, like, apparently he tried out for Nate, but he is great as her brother. We get just a, a glimpse of him in this first episode. Yes, 
Uh, I was surprised. I thought it would have been another actor. I was surprised it was him. But Nate kind of lays his life out too. Like, you know, his mom and brother are control freaks. Claire's, you know, he, he doesn't even know her. He's he's 35. She's 19. She's young and wild. It seems like they only smoked pot at Thanksgiving. Like, you can't, you, like, you don't really know this baby sister of yours. Yeah, and so yeah. he he wanted to get as far away from this business as possible, and you could really sense some resentment there. Yeah, and also fear. Like he he's very uncomfortable being back, having to go back, and now pretty much like the worst thing already is obviously like for anybody the worst thing would be a family member dying, but it's almost like death is going to be confronting him head on, right? It's something that oh, he's yeah. been running from and now it's caught up to him in a way that he can't escape it. I would I would think the log line for this show is like in a family that's always been surrounded by death, how one death can just change the course of all these people's lives. Yeah. Uh so David, of course, you know, even though he's like traumatized, he has to go back to the middle of the service. And, you know, you get this – one of our first, like, hyper-realism, like, he just wants to scream. And it's kind of funny that we do – like, you're like, oh, my God. And then really good edit, just him just standing there. In that shot, you get a sense of how malleable Michael C. Hall's face is. Like, when he <laughs> yeah, screams, true. it's like his face becomes twice as big. Like, his mouth is huge. His yeah. eyes are popping out of his head. It is, a, like, very – um impressive just how like expressive his face can be and we see that also in dexter it's just um you know it, it's i don't want to say it's like a cartoony face but he can he can definitely make some very exaggerated expressions that are perfect for these surreal moments so claire drives ruth to the hospital and claire is tweaking like claire is like you know both hands on the wheel like do not talk to me i'm like eyes yeah. focus like I'm freaking out in the inside. And Ruth is asked Claire if she's having sex and doing drugs. Right, right. It's like, you know. Unaware that she's on drugs. That it's like, <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. And, you know, how how awful. Like, she's basically not getting called out because Ruth is just asking as a curious mother. Like, are you doing these things? She's yeah, not asking out of suspicion in the moment. But certainly that's the last question that Claire wants to hear at that point in time. Oh, and so just to go back to David for a sec, you know, he is a, a girl, a very cute girl, goes up to him and just wants to compliment him on the music. You know, she's been to three funerals this year and they all like she can't stand the music. And David's not paying attention. He can he's acting like he can hear her thoughts. And it's basically like you're never going to leave. You're stuck here now that your dad's dead. You know, law school's off the table. And this is when he. Ah! Yeah, he actually he literally screams. He actually screams. It happens in oh. reality this time, and uh, her reaction is to kind of just like turn around, and walk away. It's it's a briefer scream. It's kind of just like, Whoa! <laughs> and it's like it slipped out from his imagination. This is kind of capturing, like you know, you always hope. Like I would hope that when I die, I hope people are laughing, not at me, but I hope people are just laughing at the good times. And there is that sense. Of like, okay, you're watching this family have one of the worst things that ever happened to them, but there are some really comical moments. Yeah, like and like this, right? Because again, David, he is gonna try to keep it together no matter what, even in the face of 
his father dying, he's like, all right, well, I still have a service to do. I still have a job to do. I still have to be professional. But, you know, it he could only contain that for so long before a little bit of that, ah, <laughs> before a little of that panic slips out. He, you know, he's, he's just a human after all. And so you know, e- even the most uh, composed people can only keep it together under such circumstances. Uh, this screen made me laugh, though. This screen made me laugh more than the first one. Uh, yeah, me too. So Nate, Nate and Brenda get to the hospital. They see their mom and sister. And, you know, oh, yeah, this is Brenda, by the way. Oh, no, Brenda, Brenda finally gives her name. Right. She hadn't before. And when Nate asked, she was like, yeah, what's the point? But hey, now there is a point, right? I think she was very deliberate about whether or not she was going to share even the most basic information about herself. So Ruth wants Nate to identify the body because she can't. She's been around death, all these dead people forever. She just can't view her husband like that, which is like, I can't view my husband as work. Right. That's fair. But Nate, he's going to do it. But again, like he's coming down here and he was already having trepidations about being back around the family business. And now like the absolute worst thing that he could possibly do is identify his father's mutilated body. No, it's like everything that you're running from, you're like what you said, you're confronted with on Christmas Eve. Yeah, you can't look away. So there is that funny uh, you know, Claire asks to see Nate. Uh, she needs to talk to him. And uh, but you get that little comical conversation like, oh, how'd you meet my how'd you meet Nate <laughs> with to Brenda, Ruth and Brenda? Oh, right. Right. And she and, got, like cooking class, <laughs> cooking class. We'll get another funny cover story later on, too. Uh, you know, like these not very likely chance meetings. So Claire definitely sees Nate as this really cool older brother. I'm sure she sees David as this like spaz and so she's comfortable enough to tell nate that she is tweaking high as hell on meth and once again nate that's just appropriate like i don't know if it's right or wrong what he said but it's appropriate in the moment it's like our dad just died i do not want to deal with this right now yeah yeah but she needs to tell somebody she's losing it and obviously she can't tell her mom and even though there's not really a relationship between nate and claire yeah she she's um she has to tell somebody and nate is like the closest person she feels somewhat comfortable telling and but of course yeah what what can he possibly say to her right like it's it's, she's just making a horrible situation even worse so nate goes to identify the body and this is we're now going to have one of the first of many throughout the uh, series of conversations that these characters have with uh their father and, their late father and at least how nate perceives him is like his dad is just telling him uh you were scared and ran away but nobody can escape it's kind of like not only am i talking about the business but i'm talking about death itself yeah yeah he, he's coming off in this first i don't want to say hallucination but in this first imagining right now this is this is nate jr he this is his perception of his father which is kind of menacing and almost an embodiment of death itself. And we're going to get a flashback that kind of explains why. But yeah, this, this is Richard Jenkins, again, having an opportunity to play not just a character, but perceptions of a character, which I find to be um, you know, really interesting as a viewer. And I'm sure as an actor, uh, 
very exciting and uh, that this is Nate's perception is not a good one of his father. Well, it, he, he even starts the conversation. It's like the prodigal son returns. I'm sure how what Nate's going through, like the business is called Fisher and Sons. I'm sure Nate had a, was supposed to be running the place and well, Nate just – at the very least, one of the sons. Uh, it's it's really now just fa- like Fisher and Son, but it's sons, and obviously, you know, he had to be there for that to be plural. So, uh, you know, it's something that obviously, is, it, it it was always in his back of his mind, and uh, you know, this this is now him. A big theme for this character is him trying to uh, grapple with that failed. Uh, expectation that he would be you know taking on the family business which he did not want to do so he returns back and ruth asks him how did he look dead <laughs> he worked he looked worse than dead right his face is all torn up it looks terrible but it would just upset ruth obviously to tell her that in detail just keep it simple but thank god we have frederico because frederico is apparently a master at reconstructing these faces because uh, Ruth is worried about getting a closed casket. Right, about what that could do for the business. And, you know, it's it's kind of like she's in, I want to say, like the an early stage of grief, right? It's like she's sort of in denial. Like she's not in denial about the fact that he's dead, but she's like in denial maybe about her feelings about it, where she's going to be focusing on the business. And, you know, oh, Frederico is so talented. Like she's kind of distracting herself. It's It's very like real and a compelling way of someone to try to cope within the first few hours, at least, of their spouse dying. So uh, Nate says goodbye to Brenda and thanks her. And, you know, Brenda's basically avoiding her hell. But she, they, they part ways. Uh, oh, uh, even before that, there's a really great, it's like, I don't know if I can handle this. And Brenda simply goes, you're about to find out. And that's yeah. the thing about death. It's just like it happens and you have to deal with it. Whether you want to or not, you have to deal with it. And yeah, it's it's it not really like, is. yeah, he can't put it off like, you know, you're, you're going to have to. And I like that Brenda is kind of serving as, I don't know, um, a mediator between Nate and reality. Right. Like he yeah. can he can confide in her his feelings and she'll listen to that, but then she'll kind of turn him back and just try to set him back straight and be like, okay, like that's all understandable, but you know what? Like this is the situation and you must move forward. Uh, So Claire drives back and it should be noted that she got the old hearse and she's, it's very stereotypical of like, I'm uh, like, I never had this kid in high school, but we've always heard about like, Oh, the kid who drives the hearse. And because, like, well, she needed a car for high school. Well, it's funny, too, because it's such an old-looking hearse. I guess it's from the 70s or the 80s, but it almost looks— It was due time. It was about time they got a new one. Well, it kind of looks like a station wagon because it's, like, green. It's green, and the back hood is, like, this tan color. It doesn't at all look like the kind of hearse that you normally see nowadays. I can't imagine someone, like, a coffin being in the back of there. Oh, you don't think she cleared it? Like, I would think if I was driving a hearse, I would paint it or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. That's a good point. Yeah, that's that's maybe what it was then, that she painted it. And to make it look less like one, you don't want to 
be driving a hearse really like uh, for any other business but uh that, that's a good i hadn't considered that uh so you know she's driving a little too fast and nate says like hey slow down like she's like well you want to see fast and you know and meanwhile ruth is just kind of in her own world but nate yells like pull over and they're arguing outside and you know it, it's i i think it's kind of a disillusionment for claire because she's seeing this guy who's supposed to be on her side going like what the hell are you doing and you know like every kid says you're not my father like basically he says right. like stop acting like dad and you will definitely see uh all three of these kids have essence of both of their parents some more than uh, you know i would say david is more like his mom nate's more like his dad even claire's more like the dad but yeah, they all have essence of their parents, which is, of course, true for like, you know, Tony has essence of both of his parents. Yeah. And, and in ways that they're not willing to admit. You always want to run at first. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, with this conversation on the side of the road between Nate and Claire. Yeah, obviously, Claire resents Nate for leaving just like David does, but for different reasons. Right. Because. They, they don't really have a relationship. They're technically brother and sister, but they don't have that relationship. Claire clearly wishes they did, and she's mad at Nate for not being around to form one with her. And Nate also kind of has this, I don't want to say aloofness to him, but it's it's also like he has a little bit of audacity trying to act like they have a relationship when they don't too, right? That's something also that probably drives Claire crazy. Like, you know, don't act like we have a relationship when we don't, and it's your fault that we don't. That's a very good point because yeah no it's like like thirty five and let let's say not even nineteen I, I think I said nineteen before like sixteen seventeen like you were fifteen to twenty however like you you don't even know you're already in college and a high school by the time she's born yeah exactly for him not to have been around I I get a sense that he didn't really come and visit very often and so only for holidays it looks like right and I'm sure. Growing up, Claire would have wanted Nate to be around longer to get to know him. And maybe they, maybe she was able to confide in him now and then. But in moments, maybe where she really could have used him the, or she she needed him the most growing up in this, in this dysfunctional household, he wasn't there. Yeah, and you know, at the time, you kind of, in a moment, you would want him to be there and understandable. He is being a parent. Right, and that's the last thing she wants or needs in that moment. Well, maybe she needs it, but she doesn't want it. You uh Claire, I will say, is one of the best versions like when we talk about character development, I'm so like it's funny seeing her as a stubborn high school kid and also like cringeworthy, uh angsty, but I think who she grows to be is just so beautiful and i mean that 100 percent. I, I see you, a lot of you're uh, allowed to be you're allowed to be annoyed and hate these people at times <laughs> right uh for sure but I, I see a lot of potential in the character yeah um so they get home and david being david and nate are definitely like right brain left brain da like hey where's dad oh he's and ruth oh my god i completely forgot he's still at the morgue you know she feels bad and you know i, I even wrote like david's right but he's very obtuse about the whole situation. And, um, yeah. And that, Nate is like, you know, you got to think of mom's feelings. She's not thinking about this. He's very emotional. Right. Because David, again, he's trying to be practical. He's trying to be 
more logical about this. And maybe that's his coping mechanism is to try to act like it's still business as usual. A little bit, yeah. And, of course, you you see if David is type A, Nate is type B, like the laid back one. And, again, with the resentment here, David resents Nate from running from his responsibilities, leaving more of that on David's shoulders. And clearly we'll see with David, too, like he was put under a lot of pressure. And that definitely shaped him in a way that leaves him, I don't know, very, very tightly wound. I like that. Uh, but yeah, no, David, Nate comes in thinking that he, here's what we do. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're just a bag boy. Bag boy. I'm the assistant manager of organic produce at the, at the highest volume co-op food place in seattle like that's where (laughs) nate is in life that's his claim to whatever right like that's what he has to show for his 35 years but later on he'll kind of admit like yeah i I don't know what i'm doing with my life not to say that it's a bad thing to work in a co-op grocery store but you know it's he he, the fact that he ran away it's kind of like all right you, you left a family so what have you been up to doing instead? You know, what 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 life did you want to have for yourself outside of this family? And, you know, he, he didn't really have much to show for it. And you'll see throughout, like, the first season especially, like, Nate has stuff to offer, but he doesn't know anything about how this business is run. Or at least, like, the just the ins and outs. And, like, it's not, you know, it's not as easy as he thinks it is. No, I mean, if anything, I would think all of this is very difficult, both um, not just emotionally, but also uh, logistically, logistically, yeah. you know, the whole like embalming process. Like it all sounds like very difficult work. So, uh, you know, David goes to get his father and, you know, Claire's just watching Christmas movies. And well, she's she's watching Mr. Magoo, Mr. Magoo. I'm yes. sure you. Like, I, I I had to note that. Important about that. Okay. Well, because like Mr. Magoo is like a blind character, right? Like he he can't see anything, and I think in this moment these are characters who are all trying to look away from their reality, right? I think there's there's something to be said about that. They're all trying to blind themselves from uh, the situation that they're in. That's like my quick little note. I just feel like there's so much, it there's so many uh, deliberate choices made by this director that you know there's a reason why she's watching that particular cartoon. Wow. Oh, see, like that's that's why we're friends. Like I need that. I didn't. I just thought like if it was I didn't like know Mr. I didn't know Mr. Magoo had a Christmas special, <laughs> uh, right? I, I mean, if it was like another kind of show, right? Like if the, if we're watching like uh, a more sort of there has fluffy, to be a reason i think right. of all the christmas specials that they could have watched it it's why is it mr magoo right I for shows right. like this i am going to examine it more and like look for the reasons behind certain things more for like a fluffy sitcom obviously not you know uh but for a show like this there's a lot of visual imagery to help convey the themes here you know it's the same thing with the sopranos and the same thing with this show and I, and you know we'll see the same sort of intention with the future shows that we discuss from this network. And I think you're, uh, you know, Ruth comes in with some dinner for Claire. And I think you're right. I think Claire, uh, Ruth is grieving about this in a, 
Like, I got to take care of my family. They have to eat. We have to eat, Claire. We didn't die. Right. Similar to David, right? Like, we must keep doing our day-to-day. So David goes to get his father. The mortician says, I'm sorry for your loss. And then we kind of fade out to a sexy living splendor and balming fluid. Right. Another commercial. What's the tag? Like, only real life is better? Like, as if to say... um, the person will look so good that the only way they could look better is if they were alive. For a body that's firm, yet flexible. For skin that begs to be touched. For the velvety appearance of actual living tissue. Top morticians rely on living splendor embalming fluid. Living splendor. Only real life is better. So... We open up on this uh, flashback as uh, like a, of a childhood memory of a young, very young Nate sneaking down to his dad who's sm- smoking, and uh, he's kind of in the middle of embalming a uh, a client, as it were. And uh, you know, oh, hi, hey, buddy, don't be scared. Come on in, come on in. And you can see that, like, the one thing that I do like about this show is that, like, it is. You know, this family has like undercurrents of tension and neuroses and all that, but they are a normal family. Like Nathaniel is a playful dad. Even yeah. the set, I think the setting is a little macabre, but he's just like, hey, 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 you could touch it. Just wear this glove. Right. He's he's like very cavalier about what he's doing. Of course, Nate Senior, because this is his profession, right? Like, of course, he deals with this every day, and for. Nate Jr. It's very scary, and it's. I think this is a more objective memory as opposed to these uh, imagined conversations each of the children have, where they get their version of their dad, right? Because I don't think he's as menacing as Nate Jr. remembers him to be. It's just the association with this scary concept of death that maybe he is also associating with the dad himself. Well, you know, I think. Uh, when you're, you're having a conversation with your dad, it's more like you're just having a conversation with yourself. It's just like you, Nate, yeah. Nate definitely hates himself for a lot of reasons, and he'll explain why. But, yeah, no, a young David then walks in, and he kind of pretends to shoot his dad. And, you know, he's, ah, ah, ah. like his dad, I, I – like both – all these characters are flawed, but I think for the most part it is a healthy household. Yeah, like, I, you, I get a you, sense of that. You can look that. at these people going. It's not like The Sopranos. It's not like, uh, like you know, Mad Men. It's like, oh, these like, on the outside, of course, there's flaws and all, but yeah, no, Nathaniel did his best. So you know, snap out of snap out of the memory. Nate is looking at his dad now, on the table, and he's greeted by Frederico, gifted reconstructionist, young. Young kid, I want to say like maybe late twenties, early thirties. He's been working for the Fishers for a while, and uh, you know he's he's just kind of showing like, hey, it's good to have you back. And you know he says he says fuck, and of course David is very like wound up about language, which yeah. I didn't think would be called back. I did not I I did not think would be called back, but yeah, uh, uh, it's like have some respect. Yes, this is a this is our business. And uh, also like respect for the dead too. Like don't it's yeah, disrespectful <laughs> to curse in front of the dead. It's interesting. Even though his father was smoking over the body. Right. Like how respectful the was the dad when he when he was doing this job in the um, flashback? 
And so the, David gets a call. From who, you ask? Oh, from Keith. Me. No. Uh, <laughs> a different Keith. It's, it's, you don't often see Keiths uh, on television, but this Keith is a, a cop. And as it turns out, it's David's secret boyfriend. And I would say, having watched this show, what a great couple. And also yeah. very groundbreaking for the time because that, that's another thing that uh, you know, Alan Ball is gay. And I would say you really haven't seen a, I would say, real relationship because David, of course, is still in the closet. And we're in, we're in the midst of the early 2000s. Bush is president. Gay marriage, of course, is an issue. Sopranos, having neared the end of Sopranos, gay marriage, of course, comes up a lot. Like, it, you know, well, they're talking about like Rick Santorum. But probably the only the mainstream uh, subject matter with uh, LGBT couples is Will and Grace. Will and Grace, yeah. Right? Uh, I think Showtime around uh, the same year came out with Queer as Folk. But uh, yeah, certainly it was that shift yeah. in the culture, right? This is a turning point, early 2000s. And uh, yeah, to have a couple like this, you know, it's a gay interracial relationship, which um, if I had to put money down, I would say they would probably be the first on a main, like a major network for a, a broad American audience uh, on television. I don't want to forget Will and Grace, of course, but that of course had like the sitcom elements. This is a, like, just like, how they fight, where they like, where this couple goes, it just seems very like organic and just you're rooting for them, and it's they're great, they're great together, they're yeah. like, like you know, opposite detract almost. Um, but he's very supportive, you know. Of course, he's like, hey, I I made dinner tonight, I can't wait for you to come over after your family, and it does seem like David's coming up with another excuse, like oh, I can't do tonight, my dad died, oh, and. Keith is a very supportive boyfriend. He's like, whatever you need, like, we yeah. can talk. He, he has, like, the exact right reaction that he should have. So as this is going on, Frederico is showing off uh, his best reconstructions to Nate. Like, you know, oh, this woman got shot in the face. Like, look at that. That is great work. And, of course, I love how he ends. He's like, and they, they cremated her. <sighs> what a waste. Yeah, he's very passionate about his work, which is – interesting right he has like the opposite attitude about death that nate has where nate has a lot of fear frederico is like excited right he he loves that he has this work which he's yeah, an artist right right no I, I love that perspective that he is just uh very uh proud of his craft yes and you know you should especially if you're able to reconstruct if like I, i'm sure I, ironically enough, like people, cr like people crying at wakes for him is just like a standing ovation because of how good of a job he is. Oh, that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, he has a very interesting perspective about how his work is received. Uh, but you know, of course, like, hey, look how like my kid, look how big my kid is, and uh, Vanessa's on. You know, she's due again. Like he's gonna have another kid. So of course, like, this is a very like. He's very good at his job, and he's very happy to be with the Fishers. Right. He's a family man, works with a family business, and he's he's a very reliable employee, too. I mean, he comes he in cares, on Christmas. He, he cares enough. Uh, you know, I'm sure it'd be like, hey, this uh, Nathaniel gave me my first job, and he really believed in me. 
And of course, I would be here for not only him, but for you guys as well. Yeah, no, definitely a very likable character. And of course, David has to go like, hey, what, hey that, I, that, don't let that embalming fluid over to. Oh, right. He's very wound up. Well, also, this conversation, uh, th- there's something about this scene I think is bothering David about, you know, Nate's, I guess, learning a little bit more about what goes on here from Federico. And I don't know, I He's feel more like. friendly. Right. I, I, I get the sense that David is, has a lot of trepidations about Nate being present here. And so he, he doesn't really want, I guess, maybe Nate getting too comfortable. So that's why he kind of uh, puts a stop to that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so Nate takes this time to go check in on Claire and she seems to have been she's winding down. She's on the come down of it and. You know she's she's stubborn with him. That's that's what I wrote. And uh, but he needs to get out of here. He's like, you want to go to the grocery store? And of course she's like, yes, get me out. They need to get out of this house of just misery. Right. No, very healthy thing to do in a time like that. So while shopping, you know they're walking around, and he, uh, Nate gets a call from Brenda. And you know on Brenda's line, you can hear her parents arguing in the background. They're trading bar and. Uh, it seems like there's a disconnect here. Like I think these two people know each other or they think they know each other so well, like they're using their psychology lessons on each other. Like, and it's, it ends up with both of them trading barbs. Yeah. They're Uh, kind of being a little spiteful. Like they're reading each other, but uh, in a way that they know will get under the other person's skin. Like they're kind of stereotyping each other in a way like, Oh, you're just the rebellious kid of two psychiatrists. And, you're taking that out on me. And she's like, well, you're just the good looking guy who got away with everything. And now you're realizing you don't know anything, right? Like they're, they're just kind of um, describing each other as like the worst versions of each other. But so that's it, not why, that's not why Brenda called. She called because like, Hey, I'm like, I'm sure it's like, I miss you. I'm checking in on you. And, but Brenda of course is a child of psychologists. Like she may have not even majored in psychology, but like that's her six feet under that's her like her life output and i'm sure that they had this kind of banter on the plane that just nate is so exhausted and does not want to hear after everything that he's been through since she left does not want to hear it and he just really just kind of ends the phone call and well it's the end of a very long day yeah and claire goes up to him and you know she freaks out he's freaking out and it ends with her throwing a cantaloupe on the floor. Yeah, yeah, grocery store guys like you guys got to pay for that. <laughs> That's kind of what you need. It it does end up like they do end up going like what a day. Yeah, like, yeah, they're at the end of their ropes. And now we cut to a. I'm going to keep saying a sexy ad, but it's very how it's displayed. It's like oh, you know, don't you want to look beautiful for a, a wound filler putty? Like put in those ears. Like you know, yeah, beautiful woman. I um, I call these commercials, these satirical commercial sequences, interludes. And yeah, yeah. yeah they kind of have that way of uh, breaking up the pace of the episode. And yeah, I kind of get the point already by this one. <laughs> I, uh, I, I get they're just trying different things here. But uh, I think they probably could have just used one or two less of these sequences. Uh, so... 
it really kind of opens up with Nate having a bad dream of a bus coming at him, like straight ahead, like right where his dad was. And having been T-boned before, having been in car accidents and lived, like that stuff does wake me up. Like, I, you know, especially the first few weeks of that, like you do kind of hear the noises and it's like it wakes him right up. But yeah, it's breakfast. And, you know, it as Nate goes down, Claire's in the middle of just kind of sharing a story about her father. Kind of like it's just like, oh, you remember when dad uh, was just kind of tough on her? And Ruth freaks out. Like, don't talk about your dad. Like, your father was a good man. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like, Claire is kind of recalling this memory fondly, but anything that might have a slight negative connotation to it, Ruth is not going to have it. Like, she just wants to think of him in this bright, shiny way for the time being. Just that's, that's the stage of her grief that she's at at that point. And all that will make sense, like you're kind of because you're kind of curious, like that's a little too much, and like there, there's a way to grieve, but like one can clearly see Claire was not saying anything bad, right? There's also something else going on under the surface with Ruth that we'll discover a little later. And uh, so as everyone's upstairs, David, uh, Nate says I'm going to go for a run, but as everyone's upstairs, uh, David is doing his best to reconstruct his dad's face. And that, this is where we get another conversation with uh, David and his late father. Right. Now um, we're getting – really, It really just – I'm sure Nate uh, – Nathaniel was supportive, but you just hear like, what are you doing? You're, you're not good at this. Why can't Frederico do this? I get you, you're the guy who can't like – Yeah, so in this, in this version, uh, now we're getting David's perspective of his father. And you're right. Maybe he was more supportive. Than David's recalling, but I think what David really remembers a lot in this moment is just the pressure of having to live up to his dad and his work, and he's just uh, he he's recalling the overly critical version of his dad, and maybe like when teaching him the trade, sure he's like you know you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, but certainly years of pressure on David's shoulders might have left him feeling like maybe his dad was too critical on him and there was just a lot of pressure put on him. So that is shaping David's memory of his dad in, in this moment. I think it also comes from just like, I stayed, I went to school for this. Right. I, like, like I've been there for the business. And yet when Nate walks into a room, everyone cheers for him. Yeah, exactly. I think David definitely feels like He's maybe taken for granted all the things that he's done for the yes. family. And while Nate, yeah, he definitely resents Nate for leaving and his ability to kind of come in and out as he pleases. So Nate goes for a run through a cemetery, which is I always find like, what's the word, humbling? Or it's just, it's just kind of like an interesting place to go for a run. Interesting, But I do love the image of him running. He, he, the image is him running towards the camera away from tombstones which I think is oh, yes. very clear he is running from death, which is be, which he's been doing his whole life. I think that's probably the most clear imagery we've gotten so far. And, uh, you know, he stops at a street and he sees a bus coming. And so just something in his head, he walks out and he gets hit. And as he's bleeding out and laying down, the light appears uh, the the bus driver goes to check on him, 
and you just see like you know the the pool of blood coming out spilling out from underneath him and he looks up into the sky and the light appears and you kind of if like you're like what the hell is going on and it, he is going to the great beyond. Is I that's that's what I wrote. I how that's I what they're trying it. to make you think in that moment. He's going towards the light, and uh, it ends at the end of it is his dad with a few other people. They're all naked in the morgue playing cards. Yeah, the and, the, the father's dead body, and he's with some other corpses playing. He's like, we're gonna deal you in next. Well, which is, I think, it's just like it's not your time yet. Like it's like you'll get next hand. Right, right, and as we then see that all that was just something Nate was imagining, but the fantasy went on a little long enough to maybe confuse the viewer and, and be unsure, like, wait, is this actually happening or not? We're not sure, and sure enough, it it was just in Nate's imagination. But I for, I I've seen this show before, and I for, I'm like, what is Nate doing? I forgot that it like that, you know. I think that's the point. It just it, to like what. Like this guy is just suicidal or just very depressed. Yeah, and again, um, like you get another good shot of Richard Jenkins playing this deceased person, and again, he's a little menacing. But I think there's a lot of power in this role that he has. He's he's haunting in every sort of way. Which way you cut it? You never really had any aptitude for this stuff. I know. What did I do with my life? I went to school to learn exactly how to do this stuff. Other kids my age were going to frat parties. I was draining corpses and refashioning severed ears out of wax. Thank God I didn't lose an ear. I can only imagine what you'd do with that. I did it all for you. I did it to make you happy, you ungrateful son of a bitch. Three days later, we get Nathaniel's wake, and... It just everyone is kind of barely holding it together, and uh, Claire is basically you know we get Claire and Nate they're sitting on a couch and she's kind of jealous of Nate for getting out of here but you know grass is always greener Nate's life is not great he's thirty five he's working at a job that he hates he's still renting an apartment he always thought that he this would all be temporary for him he has no idea what he wants to do. And he's had four root canals, and he's thirty-five. Um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. It's all kind of catching up to him in this moment, and death will do that, right? Death will put things in perspective. That what he didn't know what he was gonna do when he left, but he hasn't really found whatever it is, and uh, that's kind of a scary realization. Like, oh, I, I, he got maybe just too comfortable in his routine. Yeah, one reason to become like to be fearful of death is just regret, and that's yeah basically Nate. And uh, you know, I'm sure for the first time in a while, they're on the receiving end of you know. Usually, they watch families grieving, but now the they're the family that's grieving, and they've heard it all. And of course, this woman comes up to them and go like, "Your father's in a better place now." Oh, is he? Yeah, I'm sure. And then he turns she uh, he turns to Claire. Who the hell is that? Yeah, they get condolences from strangers, and you know I, I understand that it's it's well intentioned, but to to hear from a person you never met, I'm so sorry, doesn't really mean much. In that they've moment. heard it all too. Like yep. it's it's to them they've heard all the cliches and tropes. Um, now we we cut to Ruth getting ready, and it's a very short scene, but I think a very important one because now we see her vision of Nate, uh, Nathaniel, and it's just him on the bed saying. I know, Ruth. I know. 
again, like a little scary, right? This this Richard Jenkins, very haunting. And you're right. This is basically cutting at the crux of what's really on Ruth's mind this whole time. So we go back downstairs and that same woman is now talking to Rico and Rico, it's kind of like what I said before, you know, she's like, Oh, you know, they did my, I had my aunt Shirley's wake here. And Rico's like, wait, which one is Shirley? Is she the one with the, like, he thinks of it like a job. Like, Oh, Oh, I remember her. She had, Oh, I, I did it really up. I did her really nice. Yeah. Yeah. He's recalling his work on this person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, the person that he's talking to, I don't know. She seems kind of interested. <laughs> like, yeah, she does appreciate his work. Um, so Keith arrives, and uh, yeah, of course he wants to be there for David because you know Keith has never met David's parents, whereas David's met Keith's. They stayed at their parents' place for a couple of days, and it seems like Keith's parents are very accepting of him. Yeah. Whereas David has no idea. Like he's just like I think he just grew up in this very conservative household they're also uh church going people too so like religion has uh that umbrella over this household too especially for david and ruth whereas whereas claire and nate are more like secular yeah where i ruth you can tell you she she definitely is um more influenced by religion so you know keith finally meets ruth and of course offers his condolences and like how how do you know David? Like, and everyone everyone is kind of shocked that David is friends with a cop. And, yeah, and David David's like, oh yeah, we met with racquetball at racquetball, and uh, all of a sudden, Ruth starts crying like tears, and David scoots her away, and you kind of see. Nate does not go for that. He sees all this happen, and he's like, why are we taking her away in a room? Like this should be out in the open. People should see. And he recalls this story that I, this a memory when he was backpacking in Europe, and he's on a boat and he's off the coast of Sicily, and it's like one of those funerals where you, they just there's that wooden casket and you see those mourners all in black, and he just remembers seeing all the women crying, banging on the casket. He remembers the passion, the grief, hysterical, and, right? They're they're hysterical, and. He looks around the funeral parlor and all he sees is this mundanity. He just sees like everyone just holding in their feelings. And he, it, you know, you always think like, oh, Nate's going to come in and put in, like, Nate is the emotional one. Whereas right. David is just like, this is the room for people to cry. And like, we don't want to make a spectacle. Right, right, exactly. I think Nate believes that these emotions should be expressed freely. And obviously, we're going to get David countering that later on. So Nate goes to check in on his mom. And this is when Ruth makes the confession at her husband's wake that yeah. she is she is the one having the affair. That's right. Yeah. She, she confesses. She can't keep it to herself anymore. And it just seems that the reason she did it is Nathaniel's just all up in. He's all about the business. And this guy is willing to take her on hikes and take her camping and she just wanted a life outside, and this guy, like, she feels incredibly guilty, especially now that her husband's dead. Yeah. And that he might have known. Like, well, she she'll never know for sure, right? She'll and that's, never know for sure, but that's she has the thing, that, like— That's the thing about premature deaths is that uh, there's not going to be a ton of closure. 
And for for Ruth, I mean, yeah, he might have known, he might not have known, but she's fearful that he did. And she's under the belief that he does know now in the afterlife. So of all the things that happen at your dad's wake, you find out your mom is having an affair. Or had an affair. I, I don't know if it was still going on, but... It's kind of – you do meet him. And I, oh, okay. I love, I love Root's boyfriend. Like uh, James Cromwell plays him. Oh, Not okay. this guy, but plays a, a future boyfriend, and he is great. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, uh, you kind of see how you know Nate and David are just very opposite ends on how this should be handled and how they, they're reacting to it. Right. I think David is trying to – tell ruth like you know what i don't think this is the time and nate is encouraging this right he's like no no like she wants to talk about this let's hear it and uh like now's the fucking time and of course like mother like son ruth goes we don't say that word here (laughs) Uh, right like even though nate is on ruth's side here ruth is still going to admonish him for for cursing yeah, we don't say that word. So as that uh, that's going on, Claire is uh, attempting to flirt with Keith, or at least like you know, there's a little bit like tr- trying to get to know who this person is, and just like everyone, David's friends with a cop. David plays racquetball, right? And but even even when uh, Claire introduces herself, Keith is like, "Oh, you're Claire." Oh yes, <laughs> Claire's that's like, "Right, uh, how do you know me, or how do you know of me?" And uh, David kind of comes out and grabs Keith and really just kind of vents. Like, it's just like, can you, like, my, like, just kind of vents about what everything. And Keith helps. I even wrote, like, they're a cute couple. Right, right. Keith is like, I don't know. He, 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 there's a switch in him and his expression when he's being very supportive and affectionate towards David. And, you know, David is such a hard exterior, right? He, he seems like he's kind of tough to break through. But especially out in public like this. But it's funny, too, how Keith is trying to be like just very subtly affectionate with certain like hand gestures. And David is like, no, 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 no. Like he's, he's trying to to hide all of that. But Claire does notice and she immediately realizes what's going on here. I love that. No. Yeah, it's and that's the direction. You just dedicate one shot to Claire knowing and just giving that like, oh. Yeah, like, if oh, anything, like, she seems happy for David, right? She seems like, oh, good for you, David. Like she probably thought that her her brother had no life outside of the family and was this just a uh, workaholic guy. And yeah, maybe to see this other side of him that she didn't realize, I think that makes that does please her. And uh, I, I do get a kick out of that. It's like she's she would be supportive in her own way. Yeah. So. Nate is comforting his mom, who who just feels absolutely guilty. And Nate, God love him. Like it just, how do you even go about trying to make your mom feel better? And it's just like I, you know, uh, Ruth is just like your dad's angry at me. God's angry at me. He's like, oh, dad forgives you, and she, God doesn't. It just, <laughs> it, they it, both it, do. Yeah, it's just so like you know she's. How do you even go about it? But at that time, he gets another phone call, and it's Brenda, and he ignores it. And we cut to her, and she's trying to get in touch with him. And you just see her brother crying as he enters. He's probably having a manic episode. And he opens the refrigerator and just almost is about to lose it. And she goes, I I have the olives. And he takes the jar away from her. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you get a little glimpse here and there into Brenda's home life. And, you know, you could tell that she kind of needed Nate in that moment. But I think Nate actually does say some good things to Ruth here, just at least to say what she needs to hear. Like, oh, don't, we all forgive each other at the end of the day. You know, that's that's all that matters. He does forgive you because that's just what we all do uh, at the end of our lives. So that does seem to comfort her a little bit, but there's nothing else you really could say, I guess. It's a it's a it's a bit of a journey for her to be to feel that forgiveness. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we then fade out to a shake, 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 a uh, put the fun back in funeral earth dispenser. Shake your booty. Yeah, and you, know, you actually do see them. Like, you do see them use this product, and it does look yes. like a giant salt shaker. That's kind of funny. I, I, I've never seen these, actually. I, I do know in some services, the family will take some earth and put it on the, the grave uh, as the casket is being lowered. But I've never heard or seen of these... I don't know. I that it's taking it a little too far with you know keeping your hands clean. I, I think I might side with Nate on this one. I'm sure once again Alan Ball makes this look easy though, but put the fun back in funeral. <laughs> right, right. That's uh you know, that really the most effective I think of all the commercials, like is is this last one. So we're at the funeral for Nathaniel and the priest is giving the last rites and and uh, Nathaniel is off sitting on the hearse in the distance in a Hawaiian garb, drinking a mojito or margarita or something. And you don't know whose vision that is, actually, right Not away. yet. I think you do know later. But, yeah, you this do. first moment, you're just kind of seeing him. And it's like, you know what? That doesn't look too bad if you had to watch your own funeral just kind of kicking back and drinking something out of a coconut. It seems kind of nice. But, yeah, Nate's like you. He's kind of like, you know, it does look like a salt shaker. They're salting popcorn. And, yeah, everyone kind of uses it until Nate, who goes like, no, I want to, you know, I want to go back to the old ways or at least something more real. And he takes the the, or the dirt and, you know, they do their – something I've always done at funerals. Like, you know, you put, the, you put it on the casket and he's going – he's rejecting the corporization fake aesthetic of it all. And right. he's kind of just venting out loud just how shitty – he feels and how shitty it is. Well, he's literally and, and figuratively getting his hands dirty, right? And yeah, true. He he's going on and kind of making a scene here. And while there is some merit to what he's saying, I think it's interesting. David kind of comes back with some good points of his own with the opposing view on how everything should be handled. And that will be the the like just the big arcs for throughout the show, really. And as Nate is about to walk away, Ruth says, hold on. And that's when she decides to – she throws the dirt on the casket and grieves like the Sicilian women. Yeah. Like she, like she has the emotion that Nate wants out of her and he wants to see more out of people. And uh, Nate and R Ruth hug and you could just see that David is watching with jealousy. Yeah, he's at this point, like he's really about to lose it with Nate again. Just he just comes in after leaving and just tries to insert his opinions on things without, in David's mind, having earned the right to say anything. Um, 
we see we see then Brenda arrive, but then we see also see you know Brenda walks back, walks past uh, Nathaniel who kind of goes like ooh who's this and we see Claire, Claire is imagining her father as this I'm free I'm in heaven baby type state. And, yep, uh, and they kind of like joke with each other for a second. So this is this is now uh, Claire's view and memory of of Nate Senior is one of that's more benign. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll get to that in just a sec. But before that, we have you know the family's walking back to the cars. Frederico is going to drive Ruth back. He compl- she compliments his hands, and uh, this yeah David chides Nathan for being here all of a sudden like just like like who the hell do you think you are like he's been there for the family and nate just ran away and of course and he's really against nate's whole philosophy of grieving and you kind of see nobody's living the life that they want no Um, no i mean like david i guess has been shaped by this more rigid decorum when it comes to grieving just based on the fact that yeah this he works in this business every day. This is his life. And he's come to respect this, you know, again, the decorum of it all, because he feels that grooving maybe should be done more personally. And this, the whole service is something that is done out of more respect to the dead and respecting people's privacy. So I think, again, there's merit to both viewpoints here, which I really like um i think you probably want to meet somewhere in the middle but at the same time uh, you can see why they have those very opposite views yeah but i i think david goes a little too far by going like you got out stay out well at that point he's very bitter and very resentful he's very bitter but the, like and of course they're in the middle of an argument but that's one of those like hey, it's a great line but uh, it's like damn that like to hear that from your own brother that must Right. Um, that, but no, that does. Yeah. As David is walking away, uh, a future plotline arrives, and Crooner Service International invites David. They're basically been been following them for a while, and they want to just basically assimilate their business into their giant corporation. They get to keep the name, and David's just like, "I'm like, I'm about. I want to punch something right now, and it might as well be you." He's just yep. basically yelling no. But they will become a future plot line in this season, especially. Right. Yeah, I did get a sense that this is uh, a theme, at least, that we mentioned before, this sort of conglomerization of the funeral industry. These were all once uh, just family-run businesses, and a lot of them are today owned by a big company, and it's like kept under the illusion that it's still family-run. And for this guy to approach the family – the day that the patriarch has died reeks of insensitivity. But at the same time, I imagine that as soon as this company heard that the patriarch died, that's when they, it's like the sharks circling. It's like, Oh, okay. Like, let's see, we couldn't get through to the dad. Maybe we can get through to one of the sons on the surface. It's like, Oh, we're, we're paying respects to your father. But yeah, there's the inner of like, okay, we just want to buy your company. Right. They, it's opportunistic. Um, so Claire, Claire, like you said, she's having some words with her father, and you see the relationship, you know, 
how she views her parents and her father especially is like he's already been a dad. He's done the whole dad thing, and if anything, she's an accident who came later. So she got to know an older version of the dad that maybe she never met when uh, David and Nate were young. So her view on her dad dying is he's free. He doesn't have to worry anymore. No responsibilities, no boredom, no nothing. Like she, being a young high school kid, kind of sees death as like, who cares? Or kind of sees life as who cares. Like, like she will go, she will be kind of rebellious or in that way of like, oh, you know, it's all meaningless in the end. But being so young, and I think, I, I could maybe say the same thing about when I was so young. Yeah, you kind of take life a little bit for granted, or at least you take death a little for granted because it does seem like it's so far away when you're that young, and you might not take it as seriously as people who are older. And for her to maybe think that her dad is relieved to be dead is is interesting, right? And uh, I, I kind of like that she has a more playful perception of her father as opposed to the more menacing ones that her older brothers do so nate's watching them fill in the dirt and uh brenda finally walks up to him and you know she came to check in on him and nate's whole world has been rocked he's a mess as he tells her and this is the the right time for her to give him his number and she asks him out like like she kind of they have this sense that this this is where their dark humor and their their like they kind of share that uh, together, and this is where it works, as it where where it didn't work earlier. Yeah, I think like he's like, oh, I could be a creep, I could be a rapist, and like she's like, oh, you know, I know, I, I sure know how to pick them. Right, they both have a little bit of an edge, or they both have an edge, like not just a little edge. They have an edge and and that twisted humor, and I think that's what initially attracted to them is that they both have a damaged childhood, and they both seen themselves um a, a someone who's you know a little cynical and a little dark but at the same time um they they have that compatibility where they can lean on each other and understand each other in a way that other people can't yeah and now the, their relationship will be great but in a in the same way that a roller coaster is great i i would uh, predict yeah that they definitely will have their roller coaster um so David goes to Keith's place, and I just love the way they embrace. It's just like, I need, I need, and Keith knows. Yeah, he doesn't have to say anything. They just, you know, at, at this point, we see David in his most vulnerable. He's finally letting loose that very rigid posture, and it's refreshing to see, and it's also endearing to, to see him. Keith is probably the only person he feels comfortable yeah, you kind of want to see that with his family. <laughs> right, right. He doesn't feel that with his family, which is sad, but at least he has one person that he can let his guard down with. So that's nice. And then, again, it's very intimate the way they embrace at the end there. It's it's uh, very progressive for the TV landscape to have the scene. So instead of a sexy commercial, we kind of end things with a flashback, kind of home movies of the old Fisher home. And, you know, when Nate and David are young, they're playing outside with cars. Nathaniel's watering. And, you know, it's just like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you with water. And it's just like nice, you know, kind of a happy memory. It's very nostalgic feeling. And honestly, I, I kind of got a little emotional. I've only known this family for a little less than an hour. But 
in this moment, you, you see them happy. You see them having that very benign, uh, just American tableau of, of a neutral family. And it's it's sweet, but it's also sad because now you know that that has been disrupted, not just from the years of Nate leaving, but uh, uh, the fact that now the dad's gone. And Nate, senior, uh, Nate Jr. had said too, like, you know, our, the only dad we'll ever have is gone, and that sucks. And, you know, to have this memory afterwards is effective. It's kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting in a way, like like you could you could hear the of the like like a, of a cab of a projector. Yeah, yeah, I I like the graininess of it, and you get that Thomas Newman music, which just really drives the point home. And uh, it yeah, I I feel invested already in this family, and it hasn't been that long. And uh, so it was a, another dream by Nate, and you know he wakes up, he goes to breakfast, and uh, Ruth has her hair down. She's She's very happy he's here. She's smiling. And uh, he's about to go for a run. But before he does, Ruth asks him. Uh, she kind of, like, in uh, in longer words, just like, are, are, you, are you planning on staying longer? She's, she, she would like him to stay. just a, She would like him to stay as long as possible. But it's her way of just like, I need you here. Yeah. Yeah. And Nate? Like says yes, I think that's that's very nice. He he sees that his family needs him, and he's not going to run away this time. So Nate runs away on a jog. <laughs> so Nate goes like it ends with Nate on a jog again, right? And the song "Waiting" by Devlin's plays, and I like I think it's an important. It's a very good song to end the episode on. But before we end things, Nate stops. He's drinking some water. He sees something across the street. It's his dad on a on a bus bench and he's waiting for something he gets on a bus a bus that says that has the advertisement for a good night's sleep yeah and he gets on the bus and he sees his son he just simply waves to him it's not even like a wave he just puts his hand on the window as and it's like it's a little bit of closure Right, it's like a little, a little more. Bit. Right, it's it's a very bittersweet goodbye. It's acceptance. It's acceptance that yes. he's dead. All the all, like the Fishers go through like all stages of grief, but Nate at least at this point uh, has acceptance. But I something that I always found, or I wanted to dissect it a little, just a little bit, is as the bus goes away, everyone that walks past Nathan is staring at him. Mm, right, and. I feel like that's just maybe in Nathan's in Nate's head. But I think so. I'm yeah. like I'm I'm curious like what is he thinking in that moment is like do all these people all these people are going to die. That's that's exactly what I think is the significance of this scene is he's looking at all these people walking past, he's imagining them looking at him and maybe that some of them are because he's staring at them uh, and he has like a very unusual expression on his face, right? He he Clearly seems Enough a that bothered. you would turn back if a guy was staring at you like this across the street. You'd be like, why is this guy staring at me? And I think this goes back. I think this goes back to an earlier line when Brenda is driving Nate to the morgue and she asks him, like, you know, are you mad for yeah, are you mad at your family? Or are you just mad because everyone is going to die eventually? Or something yes. to, I'm I'm paraphrasing. And I think that at this moment he's looking at everyone and again he's he's thinking about death more than he ever has. And he's looking at all these people. It's like, this person's going to die. That person's going to die. That person that everyone's going to die eventually. 
uh, everyone you see. It's the, it's like are all these people are gonna die? Do they know? And if they do, what are they gonna do about it? What am I doing about How it? How do they deal with it? How often do they think about it? How often does it affect their day to day life? That the, their their own mortality. And I think that's a great a great way to end the the, the episode. Very contemplative scene that leaves you thinking and gives you plenty to to chew on afterwards you're really lucky you know that you're kidding it was over in a second i didn't have to be afraid of it i didn't even have to think about it no more bullshit no more responsibility no more having to care no more boredom no more waiting to die <laughs> This show will not help you overcome your fear of death, but it will help you be more comfortable with the idea of it. Yeah, exactly. I think it makes it, if anything, maybe not comfortable, but there's there's some relief in that it does happen to us all. It's something that we all have in common. Like it unites everyone, I guess, in a way, right? It's um, It comes for everyone. That's another line that Nate Sr. has earlier. You know, no one can escape it. And I think that is some form of, of relief that you could find or of um, alleviating it is like, you know, it's, it's not just unique for you. It's, it's something we're all grappling with. And, it's a great show. Uh, yeah. It's a great show. It like, and you wouldn't think a sh- like a show about like, uh, like a regular family, a family dynamics would be so emotionally investing, but damn, they, this show takes you places. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting just from how uh, you know, the sensitivity that this is directed with and the thoughtfulness that it's written with, you know, you could really do a show that is this emotionally effective about any family, but it's especially powerful with a family that runs a funeral home because, you know, they see it all. They, they, they are constantly uh, helping other families who are having their worlds be destroyed while their own is, is, is being destroyed as well. So I think that it's such an interesting perspective. And again, I, I imagine this all just comes back to him wondering like, you know, what are these people's lives? And it's, it's um, just a very strong show thematically and conceptually. And if you can find humor, even in like the darkest of times, uh, I think then it, you're going to be okay. Yeah. If you can laugh at a funeral, if you can just like, once again, Nate or David screaming, it's like, if you could find laughter in, in moments like that, uh, and I, it's all credit to the writing. I, and I think it's something like I meant, we mentioned in true blood that Alan ball left after season five, Alan stayed for the whole five seasons on this. Like this yeah. was, he, he loved this show. Yeah, I think five seasons is like a really good length for this show. And I, I my only thing is, I, I don't know if I'll continue with this show only because there's just so much to watch. And oh, I think you'll if, find it eventually. You'll find it eventually. I think so. It's if, if this show was running now, if I, if I was my age in 2001 and I caught this show, I would definitely make a point to continue watching it. It's just in yeah, this the show probably is again just mixed up in the shuffle between all these other really big shows that have been released in the years prior and since and hopefully i find time 
to to go down the road and and go down this journey uh not right now but hopefully one day i will always encourage people to watch this show it's it's it is kind of like the david of the hbo shows like of course people will go for uh sopranos but this one is Oh, the middle child, you're deserves, saying? Th- it's the this middle one child? Deserves a section. Yeah, this one deserves a section in the HBO Museum. I'll say that. Yeah, I agree. I, I It's a show that came to mind when we were coming up with this series on, on HBO Pilots. And again, it was another momentum boost for, uh, for the network as it continued to establish itself as a prestige entertainment. Uh, so as in the spirit of that, I think the next show we're going to talking about is maybe one of the most critically acclaimed shows of all time. It's definitely a big one. And that is the wire. So again, like the shows that we Love discussed it. already have a lot of acclaim. And then the next one is just getting even higher and is just more peak television. So uh, Keith, we'll discuss that next week and uh, I'll catch you at the next pilot. Follow us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Take Us to the Pilot. That's Take Us to the Pilot with the number two. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day.